This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the Artificial Intelligence Podcast with your host, Dr. Tony Huang. Today, I have Nag Murdy from Electric Sheep. Can you give us a quick, brief overview of your background and what led you into the tech space? Sure. Yeah. I am a aerospace engineer turned serial entrepreneur. Prior to starting Electric Sheep, I built and scaled and sold a medical devices company that grew out of a class that I'd taken while I was at grad school at Stanford. That device ended up saving about 300,000 lives across 22 countries. And in the process, I learned a lot about designing devices, designing deep tech companies and scaling them. Following that company ended up working under the Obama administration in DC for a few years. And in that process ended up buying a house, which had a large lawn in it. And you must realize I grew up in India without in, in Bombay and I didn't, I hadn't seen a single blade of grass growing up where I had grown up. And now all of a sudden I had to take care of this large lawn in Virginia. So I did what every engineer does. I built, started to look at automation solutions, started building some robots out of my garage and so on and so forth. And then I just stumbled into the industry and and along the way ended up talking to my co-founder who comes from the commercial landscaping industry. And then we realized that there's a massive opportunity to roll up companies and automate them. And that's how Electric Sheep got started. So that name, Electric Sheep, that's a very intriguing name. What's the story behind that? Yeah, Electric Sheep is, it comes from the book, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? It is a uh, book by Philip K. Dick. uh, And it's also the inspiration for the movie Blade Runner, which happens to be one of my favorite movies. So it's also a play on the word lawn, uh, on sheep that eat grass. And we build lawn mowing robots as part of what we do. So your frustration in mowing your lawn served as the genesis for this venture. What was the aha moment when you realized that there's like a business opportunity here? I think it was when I was talking to my co-founder, Jared, who comes from the commercial landscaping industry. And at the time, I was just trying to solve my own problem. And then in talking to him, I realized that It's a massive problem. It's like a $250 billion industry. There's a massive labor shortage. There aren't enough people showing up to do work in this space. And automation seems to be one of the ways that the industry can grow. And that's how we stumbled into the business potential of what this could be. So you guys were working out of a garage in Silicon Valley. Is that right? That's right. It's uh, doesn't get more Silicon Valley than that. Yeah. So share some like memorable stories from like the early days when you're building like the the first MVP. I think it, we've always taken a lean approach to building these, to building the company and our prototypes. So the first prototype we built was essentially a retrofitted zero ton mower that we just went to Home Depot, bought it off the shelf, took it back to the garage and we started to hack around with the wires inside it. And as a precursor to, you know, learning 
how to automate it, we just decided to remote control it. So the very first step was we signed up to be gardeners for a few people. <laughs> we take this robot out and remote control the lawn just to know all the intricacies of how things could be done. And then from there, we started to build more and more sophisticated automation using GPS and LIDARs and cameras. And so we've taken a very iterative, hands-on, hack your way through product. Could you dive a little bit deeper into your LLM and how that influenced your robotic design and operations? Yeah, so I think we've always been applying AI to the work that we've been doing. So LLMs are a new phenomenon, and I would say there's a the part of a broader category of really large models, which require a lot of data. Historically, robots have always leaned on machine learning models for what's called perception, which is what do I make out or like, how do I see the world around me and what's in it? So that's typically where machine learning has been used. What's happened since the rise of LLMs is the robotics community has now started to ask, hey, if large language models can start to make sense of language and provide automation when it comes to cognitive tasks, can the same be applied for robotics where manual tasks can be automated using large machine learning models? And so what we're doing is we're building like a physics analog for what a large language model is. And we call that a large world model which effectively allows robots to autonomously navigate the world around them and take actions in them. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. That, that's a new, isn't that like very new? Did you guys, yes. term or did you take it from a different or like something that was coming from the, the edge of innovation? Yeah, this is definitely at the edge of innovation. So the what's next, and you'll see this when OpenAI releases its multimodal models or when Google re releases Gemini, is that where all of all of these large models are headed towards is this notion of multimodality, where you're not just dealing with language, but you're also dealing with multiple forms of information input, like camera inputs, vision, sound, speech, right? Or sensor inputs in our case, like we use accelerometers and GPS units and so on and so forth. And so instead of just dealing with words and tokenizing them, what large world models and in specifically for robotics, what they tend to do is they tend to take in all these different modalities of information and try and make sense of them. So hence the term large world models as opposed to just large language models. So why is the, the shift from LLMs to large world models um, necessary? I would say when you're trying to um, build what we call embodied AI, which is AI that lives in a physical body and works in the real world, you have to make sense of things more than just language. Language is great if you're trying to do cognitive tasks, uh, right? But if you're trying to teach a robot to pick up an object or mow the lawn or spray a weed killer on a plant, right? Or even let's say it's, if you think about a non sort of physical robot, but you have a robot that has to navigate a browser screen, you need to take into inf account information that's way more than just words. 
And so that's why multimodality or these word models become important. I'd say another question would be like for these embodied AIs, how's that shaping the future of robotics? Are, are you seeing more people or more companies like implement the embodied AI into brand new robotics that they're creating? Yeah, I would say the robotics has always been around for, you've seen robotics, you use large industrial robots used to build cars and other things inside factories. But that robotic, that form of robotics was very repetitive and it was just taught in repeated motions, right? So you teach the robot a motion and would repeat it. What's changing now is you're taking these AI models and you're creating these brains that can drive these machines far more intelligently. So the machine is now able to make sense of the world around it and take actions autonomously or on its own. So it does not need to be taught a path or a task that it repeats. It can reason about what it's doing and take actions to influence the world. So that's the big change that's happening. And that's where you could say AI is starting to eat robotics uh, in a big way, just like it's eaten language over the past couple of years. So you guys have a claim that your robots don't require an engineer on site, which is pretty impressive. Could you dive into the kind of training data and methodologies that you use to achieve this autonomy? Yeah. So at a high level, what we're doing is we're doing what's called model-based reinforcement learning, where we're, what we do is we let the robot run around, explore its environment. And then we, we learn a representation of that environment, right? So it's, it's almost like a simulation that lives inside the robot's head. And then the robot offline will practice lots of different ways in which it can explore that world virtually, right? And then that allows the robot to improve offline and it learns what's called a policy. And then it'll go back out into the real world and then try out a few things. So that's the way we train the robot. The reason why it doesn't require supervision today is because we've trained it in two phases. We, we focus a lot on safety and containment. So the do no harm principle is what we emph emphasized initially. So once that module was in place, then we could put the robot out and allow it to start exploring how to do work as long as it did no harm. So that's why we are able to put these robots out and have them start to do progressively more and more work without needing supervision. Does that make sense? Yeah. So as like many tech companies focus on developing and selling their products, you guys are unique in which like you guys are just acquiring traditional outdoors service providers, right? That's right. Like how did this business model emerge and what are some advantages that you found? Yeah, that's a great question. So when we started the company, the goal was to sell robots to other people, right? Other landscapers and other outdoor service companies. Uh, what we realized along the way was as we started to see what AI could do, right? What, what these large models could do, we realized that the opportunity over the next decade and beyond was a very different opportunity. So instead of thinking about robots as a means to drive revenue, we said, look, if the future is going to be ML and ML needs all this data and deployment at scale and a reinforcement learning sandbox at scale, 
it makes sense to build a full stack, vertically integrated business. And there are great examples for doing this, right? So if you ask someone, what is the largest robotics company in the world today? The answer isn't like one of these arm manufacturers or AMR manufacturers that sell to warehouses. The answer is Amazon. Amazon has 750,000 robots that they've built and deployed for themselves. And that's a model that we think is worth emulating when it comes to robotics. So really, in summary, it's like data and a sandbox at which you can deploy robots at the scale of millions to take advantage of the new trends in ML. That's why we went with a full stack business. And another really important reason is it has to do with cost efficiency of building a business. When we acquire these businesses, they're already generating profits. And so we don't have, we're not as dependent on raising external venture capital to do R&D and to collect data. So it's a twofer that we get with this business model. So the stats that you mentioned were like, I think you guys had like 2x growth in revenue. There's a significant increase in sites if you guys, if like a company implements your model. Yep. Um, can you shed some light on some challenges that you faced and like the strategies employed to achieve these numbers? Certainly. So I'd say we've grown a lot more than 2x. Over the course of this year, we've actually grown about 8x in revenue uh, when you compare 23 to 22. Uh, and and what why that is because we're not trying to win over customers as uh, as much as we're basically just taking over existing companies and growing operations within them and so this is what's called a roll-up strategy and private equity does this all the time right so for instance the largest landscaping company that's listed publicly on the u.s stock market it's it does about three billion dollars in revenue it's called brightview and they were rolled up using KKR. So KKR is a very well-known private equity company, and they rolled up a lot of little landscaping companies to create Brightview. We're taking the same playbook. What are challenges to doing this? I think the one thing we've realized in the process of doing this is that you need to tap into different capital sources to grow a company like this, right? So when you're trying to acquire businesses, it's best not to raise equity to do this, you need to raise what's called acquisition capital or debt to do this alongside a little bit of equity. It's because equity is a really expensive form of capital that should be used to fund R&D, but not be used to grow operations or fund acquisitions. So we raise a mixture of debt and equity funds, the R&D and the robot deployments and uh, debt funds the acquisition of companies. So as you work to automate outdoor maintenance. What are some ethical considerations you, that you had to navigate, especially concerning job displacement in traditional landscaping businesses? Yeah, that is a great question. I would say one of the biggest challenges in this industry is labor availability. And so if you talk to any landscaping company, they will tell you that the big challenge is that they can't find people. And uh, the labor that is available is extremely volatile. So there's a lot of churn in the industry when it comes to labor. So we don't see ourselves as displacing any labor at all, right? Rather, we're saying the industry is suffering from want of lack of labor. So that's where automation plays a huge role. In terms of other benefits, I would say, as opposed to ethical concerns with this, with automation allows the people, the line workers or the crew members in this industry to largely upskill themselves, right? Because historically, someone who got into 
mowing lawns as a, for a living, they would be stuck there in that job for like decades with no sort of upward mobility when it came to upskilling themselves or doing other things. Now, as a result of automation, they get to oversee a fleet of robots. So they technically upskill themselves and then they, their time is freed up to do more value added and more creative work when it comes to things like planting flowers or thinking about like landscaping design and so on and so forth. So I would say automation is net like a huge benefit to the industry overall. Yeah. So how do, how do you see AI powered robots fitting into the broader vision of a sustainable and greener future? I would say there's a lot of different angles, right? Let's, I'll give you a few examples. So what AI is able, what AI powered robots are able to do are when it comes to say something like a weed treatment is the weeds with targeted spraying of fertilizers or target targeted spraying of weed killers. As opposed to that today, the manual approaches are just like a spray and pray, right? So you spray the whole lawn and you hope you get all the weeds. That's one example where AI can have a huge impact. The other comes down to electrification. A lot of uh, lawn mowing, a lot of landscaping is done using gas powered equipment and automation is driving the adoption of electri electrified equipment because as a precursor to automation, you need to electrify your fleet. And then, so there's massive improvements when it comes to the environmental impact because these two stroke engines or these IC engines that gas powered equipment use are notoriously polluting when it comes to the environment. So I'd say those are two areas where, you know, an AI powered future will lead to a very sustainable future. And then I've mentioned the third before, which is the upskilling of labor and sort of the elevation of the workforce, which also falls under the broader ESG ambit when it comes to this industry. Yeah. I too am all electric. I, I got an electric vehicle. All, everything in my house is all battery powered. Even my lawn equipment, I, I don't even use gas powered equipment anymore. I have about Ryobi stuff that has yeah. interchangeable batteries. Yes. And it just makes things a lot easier because I don't have to deal with like gas and touch gas or I'll go out to the gas station and, and fill up. And then I could just take like a rechargeable battery pack from one of my wall chargers and just pop them in. So I see a lot of value in, in these battery powered outdoor maintenance equipment. Absolutely. And another aspect of this is also noise. Gas powered equipment is way more noisier than electric battery powered equipment. And so if you can actually test like a gas powered leaf blower, as opposed to like a battery powered leaf blower, and you see the dramatic reduction in noise when it comes to that. So that's another huge benefit when it comes to reducing pollution. So the potential of outdoor automation, there's a lot of, there's a lot of potential there, but beyond like maintenance, are there any other like sectors or niches that you guys are trying to expand to in the future? Yeah, definitely. I'd say the entire industry is about $250 billion, right? It's not just lawn maintenance. Snow removal is a big one. Parking lot sweeping is another one. Road repair or asphalt repair is another big part of outdoor maintenance. So the whole host of activities, which extend just beyond taking care of grass or lawns. And today we service all of that through the businesses we acquire. It's just that we're selectively automating away specific tasks while we collect data 
on all the other kind of tasks that can be automated. So you're you're aiming for robots to handle these complex tasks in these like varied outdoor environments. Like how do robots handle unexpected obstacles or challenges, say for instance, a unique landscaping feature or I don't know if it rains or storms, like unpredictable weather patterns? Yeah, that's a great question. This is where again the sort of the business model and the machine learning based approach makes a ton of sense. Because what we can do is we can essentially use imperfect robots that are progressively Wait, stop. I automated. Your phone go off. Can you mute your phone and then just restate that? Oh, sorry. Yes. I would say that's where our business model and machine learning, the power of machine learning comes into play because our business model allows us to extract value from imperfect robots or progressively better robots. So if we come across, if a robot comes across an obstacle or a feature or something that it doesn't understand, there is a crew member who's doing other things near the robot, doing other things on the property that, that the crew member can step in and effectively finish up what the robot couldn't do. And then the robot just learns from that data. And then at night, when it uploads its data to the cloud, the overall model gets retrained. And the next day, the robot's able to do the same task better. So that, that's the data engine will address those imperfections. So speaking of like cybersecurity, how are you guys taking care of that, especially given that these robots operate in like an open public environment? So we, we don't deal with, because we're not selling robots to any landscape or anyone else, this is entirely data that's sort of within our own servers without access to the public in any way. So from a cyber, from a cybersecurity perspective, it's almost like a closed ecosystem. Uh, no other company gets access or no other vendor gets access to this data. So I, I have a lot of friends who are in the landscaping and outdoor service industry. And yep. I know that industry has traditionally been very manual. Um, so what has been the industry's uh, reception on your robots, especially from those who have been in the industry for decades? Yeah. So initially it's, it's always like a behavior change and a winning of hearts and minds approach. Right. So I think the landscapers, there's a show me, don't tell me crowd and we really respect them for that. But over time, what we've come to realize is through our business model, if we can find ways to engage them, help them see the upside of selling their business to us, and then also gradually help them automate and grow their own operations. That's a win partnership for both them and us. And so we found that sort of being very upfront about where the technology is at, where exactly it can add value to their operations and what are the benefits in working with someone like us, as opposed to just going to another or just trying to deploy automation on their own, explaining that helps them really understand our trajectory and our sort of intentions as a company. And it seems to work well for both parties involved. So beyond like HOAs, parks, college campuses, are there other environments or applications you guys are eyeballing for the service? Um, yeah, airports are another big one, right? Maintenance of parking lots is another one. Stadiums, university stadiums, and we've done a variety of these kinds of properties. So I'd say any public infrastructure that is repeatedly exposed to the forces of nature that can do wear and tear upon it uh, is what we service. So as AI and robotics continue to spread across the various industries, in your opinion, what are some like societal shifts or changes do you anticipate in the next decade? 
I'd say I'd say a lot of what we're going to see is cobotics or agents that work alongside human beings. As a company, we don't subscribe to the view that you're going to see massive job loss or things like that with with the increasing use of AI. You're going to see AI increase the GDP, add a lot of value and help 10x the capabilities of the workforce today and really improve lives. So we're looking forward to the age of abundance. We're super excited to play a small part in helping build towards it. Yeah, so as someone who's at the forefront of AI and robotics for outdoor maintenance, what kind of trends or like challenges do you guys foresee like coming up uh, on the horizon? I think it's it, you'll need new business models to fund sort of the innovation. There's a lot of overhype around what AI can or can't do or, or specifically can do. And I think that needs a certain level of maturity to realize that it's almost like you're bringing up toddlers and helping them learn and become better and better. So I think some amount of pragmatism and sort of fiscal prudence in how we go about building these systems is much warranted. And I think that'll be the big challenge as we look to unlock the potential of AI. For people who are fascinated by the, the convergence of AI, robotics, and traditional industries that are, that are very manual, what like resources or avenues would you recommend for them to explore in, if they wanted to get into it? I would say looking at, it, it depends on who you're talking to, but if you're talking to the, like a university student, right, or someone who's, who's non-technical, best ways to actually start building, right? And learning about some of these basic things. So for instance, iRobot sells like a kit that you can use to build on top of your existing Roombas, which I thought was really cool. And we started to play around with this. There's also a lot of interesting robotic simulators, right? Where you don't have to necessarily get into sort of the, physic the physical parts of building a robot, but you can virtually build them and learn and explore how they're doing. And there's a bunch of courses on Coursera and these open source learning platforms where you can, if you want to get really technical, you can start deep diving into the technical aspects. And then if you really want to get into it, you come over to Silicon Valley where all the magic's happening and join a robotic startup. So if I needed to get in touch with you, how would I do it? You can just reach me at my email. That is nag, N-A-G nag, at electricsheep.company. That's E-L-E-C-T-R-I-C-S-H-E-P dot C-O-M-P-A-N-Y. Now, it's been a pleasure discussing Electric Sheep and the exciting world of AI-powered robotics. Before we finish up, is there anything else you'd like to share with the, the crowd? This was a great interview. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on the show. Until next time, stay curious.